Coach Brad here. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about the Chasing Poker Greatness VIP newsletter. Hopping onto the VIP newsletter is the absolute best thing you can do to ensure this plucky little podcast keeps going indefinitely into the future. When you sign up, you'll get exclusive behind-the-scenes Chasing Poker Greatness content, access to the private Chasing Poker Greatness Slack community, notifications for product launches, entries into monthly free coaching giveaways, and much, much more. So if you're wondering what the absolute best thing you can do to support your favorite poker podcast, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP and access the newsletter today. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP. And now, back to the show. Poker's legendary champions. Next generation stars and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is the author of Winning No Limit Hold'em, Ashley Adams. If there's one thing I can tell you straight away about Ashley, it's that dude is a natural-born storyteller and has gone out of his way to collect more than his fair share of amazing poker stories. Luckily for you, he's just about to share some of his favorites in this here conversation. You'll hear about the time he traveled to a home game down a dirt road in the middle of the sticks in Alabama, to the time he battled in a game that makes your favorite podcast host salivate in a now-extinct Asian casino. In today's episode, you're also going to learn the resourceful ways Ashley was able to find home games in towns where he had literally zero connections, what really grinds mine and Ashley's gears as it relates to poker content creation, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the poker storyteller supreme himself, Ashley Adams. Ashley, good morning, sir. How you doing? I'm doing fine, except for the fact that I can't see out of my right eye. I'm doing terrific. Well, we all have our minor ailments that are holding us back in life. You know, yours is you just can't see out of one of your eye. Hey, that's um, why you got two. And tell me, tell the audience, tell the listener what happened. I had uh, retina detachment uh, about a month ago, and then I had retina reattachment surgery. Um, and I've been struggling to uh, see. And then in a couple of weeks, the the surgery and the reattachment will be complete, and I'll be returned to 2020 vision or better. I'm looking forward to it, but it's not comfortable. Now, I can see you and the fact that you have no hair, but you do have headphones. So I think I'm seeing all right. Yeah, I told you about, you know, getting in the middle of Negranu and Doug Polk. You know, you're just, you're bound to get hurt when you put yourself in the middle of those guys. Well, I wasn't so precariously positioned. I've played with Daniel, but I've never played with Polk. I've read his stuff 
I've read. In fact, I was just yesterday reading on your Granu's book from way back when he wrote that huge volume with other people. Um, and I was thinking about how different playing styles become outmoded after a time. I mean, he was recommending, you know, raising three times the big blind in tournaments. I don't think any of the pros do that anymore. Uh, but it's anyway, I was, I was contemplating his interesting theories back in 2005, 2006, and how they've evolved. Yeah, we didn't know as much back then. And we didn't have these supercomputers that we could put a bunch of numbers into and they could, you know, we're on for like a week or two and come out with some precise, uh, precise number that we ought to be opening with preflop. We were just winging it back then. Right. Right. Um, can you tell the listener something interesting about you that a lot of people don't know? Well, nearly the whole world doesn't know anything about me because I am (laughs) not much of a celebrity, but, um, I am very active in the Jewish community, a former president of my synagogue. That's something that most people who see the name Ashley Adams would not typically guess. Uh, I'm the co-chair of the Jewish Labor Committee, and I have held many fundraising tournaments at my synagogue. Really? You bet. So that's that's not frowned upon. That's a, a thing that everybody enjoys at the synagogue. I would say it is embraced as a fundraiser. It's been very, I was doing this before uh, Chris Moneymaker. So it was kind of an unusual thing in the Boston community in which I live to have a tournament. Typically you'd have to go down to the nearest casino room at the time, which was Foxwoods. So we would have initially, believe it or not, seven card stud tournaments. uh, And then later when everybody embraced No Limit Hold'em because they saw it on television. We did No Limit Hold'em once, but we were like the only game in town. Now, of course, I live in the greater Boston area. There are, even after COVID, we have tournaments running all the time in nearby New Hampshire. And before the uh, the COVID disaster, every Knights of Columbus, VFW Hall, Italian American Club, they all had tournaments all the time, not to mention Foxwoods, Mohegan Sun, the Encore, et cetera. So I, I feel like I was a trailblazer. In, uh, <laughs> yeah, you absolutely were. And a lot of people don't know that the VFWs and all of these places, like in my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee, there's a home game every night somewhere. That's uh, right. And there's not just one, there's multiple. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that in almost every city in the United States, you can probably find a home game every single night of the week if you check closely enough. That's true, Brad. In fact, I can speak to that. Um, One thing that many people may not know, but that I've tried to publicize is that I may be the only person in the world who has played poker in every state in the United States. Uh, And to do that, considering that only 38 states have legal public poker rooms. And when I started this, there were only 11 states that had legal public poker rooms. I had to find and play in many private games in many cities, including Boise, uh, Idaho, Portland, Oregon, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, 
uh, Murray, Kentucky. So I can absolutely speak to what you just mentioned. Every place you go, if you work at it, you, you can find a home game, including places in the Bible Belt and whatever. And in fact, I'll just add something else about this, because this is one of my favorite topics. This isn't poker strategy, but it is part of what makes me love the game. I joined the Elks Club, even though they're kind of an old school uh, organization. What is the Elks Club? More than any fraternal organization, um, more than the VFW, more than the Moose, more than the Rotary, more than anybody has small poker games throughout the United States, $5 tournaments, $10 tournaments, whatever. And I wanted access. If you're a member of the Elks, you you have your Elks card. You go into Paducah or Shlomoville or whatever, <laughs> and you, you can get into the Elks club and play in their poker games. So I did that. What is, what, what is the Elks club? What is this? What is this thing? I've heard the name, but I have no idea what it is. Okay. The Elks Club is a wonderful fraternal organization, and I say fraternal because it was started by men. It's now absolutely open to women. It used to be, in fact, exclusionary on race and religion, but it's totally opened up to everybody of every type that prides itself on doing good deeds in the community, fundraising um, and the like for different uh, groups of indigent children, educational money. Um, They are... They pride themselves on their patriotism. And I think patriotism can go both ways. You know, sometimes it's something that's embraced by the right wing, but I see it as something that is universal. Patriotism includes dissent and all of that, uh, free speech. But they are very big on supporting um, fundraising and uh, philanthropy. But also, and I think a lot of their popularity in the middle and early parts of this of the last century was because they are a place where you can drink legally as a club when perhaps your town is dry or dry on Sunday. You can always go to the Elks for a beer or uh, a Boilermaker with other people when other places might be closed. And I think that's a small part. It has no interest of mine. I'm not a drinker, but I think a lot of people saw the Elks as a place where they could legally drink if they weren't a veteran and couldn't get into the VFW or the American Legion Hall. Yeah, so basically in their downtime, when they're not saving the community, they can go drink and gamble and, <laughs> and <they laughs> on, their, on their periodically. own. Periodically, you know, you have a profitable operation selling drinks to your members. It's not free. You've got to pay at the bar. And that can help subsidize a lot of your philanthropy or your support for kids or your support for veterans uh, you're making it off of the people that want a place to drink. So for sure, I so never thought we were going to talk about this on this show, but I'm happy to have done so. <laughs> and I, I want to actually ask you a follow-up question. All these places that you've played cards, was it through the Elks club? Like, do you have any stories about, you know, how do you find a home game in a place in the middle of the Bible belt with no casino around and you don't know anybody there? Yes. Like how the heck do you do that? That's a great question. The answer about the Elks, I'll just, address that quickly. Since I've joined the Elks with at least largely the intention of using their vast network to find poker games, I have never taken advantage of it just as a matter of happenstance. I'm happy to send them my dues to go to the occasional social event at the local Elks club, but I have never, not once ever 
used my membership card to get into play poker. But I have found some interesting connections in order to find a home game. For example, this relates back to my ethnic identity. I was in Virginia. Virginia is part of the Bible Belt. Um, Poker is forbidden. Gambling is forbidden by state law. But as you mentioned, there is a lot of home poker. So I was going to the heart of the Bible Belt in Virginia, which is in the central and western part of the state. Specifically, I was assigned to go to Lynchburg. Lynchburg is a wonderful small city. No public poker rooms anywhere within that part of the state. I had never played in Virginia. So I decided to try to find a game. And what I did was, first, I did what I often do is I called the local newspaper, the Lynchburg Times or the Lynchburg Gazette. I forget the name. What was, was what year was this? Pardon me? What year was this? This was uh, roughly 2003. Okay, so... so there did, are poker... What, you're going to uh, mention poker room where? I was just going to mention the... the uh, you know, the internet and our search capabilities and the connectivity and how like 2003 is going to be different than today. Like 17 years ago was a different world when you're trying to find this kind of stuff out. There was no Facebook or anything like that. No, but there was the internet and I used it to try to find home games. The problem is that a lot of the home game networks that exist today, even using it today, very tough to find a home game because people understandably are circumspect about releasing to strangers any details about the game. There is a site called homepokergames.com. There is the 2 plus 2 network. There is, well, back then there was RGP, Recreational Gambling Poker, where you could post stuff. And there was even back then legal online poker in the United States. You could play on Planet Poker, Party Poker. Even Poker Stars had gotten up and running by then, Paradise Poker. But those networks didn't produce any games for me. So I had to go old school and I called the newspapers, figuring often reporters know a lot of things that the general public doesn't. It was a dry hole. None of them could help me. I even went so far as to call other fraternal organizations Um, like the Elks before I was a member. Nobody gave me anything. So I pulled my ace in the hole. I called the conservative Jewish temple, the shul the synagogue in Lynchburg. But if I called and I said, hi, I'm Ashley Adams, I'm looking for a poker game, I wouldn't have gained any traction whatsoever. They would have hung up on me, so I'm nut. So I did what I've done a few times successfully. I said, hi, my name is Ashley Adams. I am an active member of my synagogue in Boston, and I am traveling to Lynchburg on business. I'm looking for a service to attend during the week. Some synagogues have services during the week. Some only have them on Friday night. Some only have them on Saturday morning. I'm going to be there Sunday through Thursday. Do you have a daily service? Uh, Well, Mr. Adams, we will contact the rabbi. We don't normally have any services during the week. I see. I then chuckled and I said, I'll tell you something else that would interest me. Uh, It's not as important as the service, but I'm a poker player Do you know of any poker games in town? And I had since having established my bona fides, my credentials as an observant Jew, 
Now the door is open. So the secretary says, she laughs, and she says, well, as a matter of fact, Jaime Levine, who's a pawnbroker in Lynchburg, he has a poker game. I'll send him a note and see if he's willing to have you like that. And sure enough, that night I get a call from Jaime Levine, uh, who has a pawn shop. And he says, by the names are changed to protect the innocent. And he says, oh, Mr. Adams, yes. On Tuesdays, we all play up at this place, somebody's summer place in the mountains. You're welcome to join us. And so I did. And we had a wonderful time. That's a great story. Yeah. Um, Super clever. It reminds me of a writer. It was like in the 80s or so wanted to get one word, I believe it was pregnant, onto a TV sitcom. And it was not a word that was like used regularly back then. And so they wrote it in like 30 times in the in the in that script for the episode. And they only wanted one. And so that was part of like the bargaining chip, right? They're like, no, you can't have 30. Like this is way, this is crazy. He's like, okay, what about five? And they're like, mm, what about one? And he's like, okay, we'll do that, right? <laughs> you, uh... Did, did you actually have work in Lynchburg? Did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I, um, my day job, just so there's no confusion, I am a very active poker player and writer and have made a nice side income and business out of poker. But I am primarily a union negotiator, union organizer. That's my day job. I work for the teachers union and I have for over 20 years. Um, so that brought me to Lynchburg for a training that we were doing, that I was doing with other staff people of the National Education Association, and it happened to be in Lynchburg. So I didn't make that up. That was real. Okay, so you weren't just lying through your teeth to get access to a poker game. And and the truth also (laughs) is that when I visit a city, I do try to find a service to attend because I enjoy going to services. I enjoy meeting people from that city. And if I can, I want to experience as much out of a place as I possibly can. So I didn't make that up, but I admittedly used and exploited my Jewish identity to make a bond from which I might be able to find a poker game. Right. Which, you know, you're, you're a problem solver. This was a a way to solve that problem. And I see that, you know, that's super clever calling the newspaper, first of all, and speaking with the reporters. This is something that I never would have even considered when trying to find a home game or trying to find access or something like that. It seems like you're, you're a resourceful man who's clever and enjoys solving problems. And for a resourceful human who's clever and enjoys solving problems, poker is pretty much an ideal hobby. And Good segue. Very good segue, Brad. Thank you. Um, So tell me, when did you start taking poker seriously? When did you feel the, you know, the passion to start writing about poker and making it a bigger part of your life? That's that's a good question. Um, I always took poker seriously in the sense that I never just dabbled, even in high school and college. To me, winning was, was very important. And I was a very competitive guy when I played, I really wanted to win. I was never one of the people that, you know, drinks and plays loosely just for the fun of gambling. But to your, I think the question, um, I played for serious money only after 
Foxwoods Resort Casino built a poker room in 1992. Uh, Prior to that, it was nickels, dimes, quarters, maybe a buck betting at people's homes. But once Foxwoods opened, now I was entering the world of quote-unquote serious poker. I bought my second poker book. I bought Education of a Poker Player when I was in college by Herbert Yardley. And that basically showed me, oh, tight, aggressive, makes sense. That's basically the only strategy you can get out of that book, different variations of uh, tight, aggressive. But I bought Ed Silberstang, uh, Winning Poker for the Serious Player, which in retrospect is clearly a beginner's book. It's not in any way advanced, but it does set out different strategies for Hold'em, Limit Hold'em, and Stud and Omaha 8 or Better Limit, um, and High Low Stud. And I read that book like it was the Bible, not really understanding that it was really only a primer and not an especially uh, excellent one at that, although I thought it was the word of God and actually ended up just as an aside on an aside, tracking down Edwin Silberstang, who lived in Las Vegas, and we became good friends. (laughs) But so that's when I became a serious player, not a winning player. My seriousness did not translate into winning money right away, even though I thought it would. I've read a book. Ooh, I've read a book. I must know a lot more than everybody else. Well, I I was humbled, but I did eventually figure out how to win. And then 1997, 96 or 97, I took what I had learned from the poker table at Foxwoods, and I wrote a 40-page uh, not edited, not especially well-written guide to winning seven-card stud. Um, and I put it on the internet, sold about 50 copies of it, one of which was to an agent, a publishing agent, um, Greg Dinkin, who's written his own books. And he sent me an email asking if I would like to turn this manual into a real published book. Wow. And at first I thought, oh, this is a, somebody who's a salesman for a vanity press company. You know, oh, you have a book idea, pay us X number of dollars, we'll publish it. But he wasn't. He's legitimate. And he showed me how to write a proposal. He said he would shop it around. He got me some advance money, and I published it with Kensington. Um, the book actually never came out until, I think, 2002, 2003. And by that time, Stud had passed from being the number one game people played to being the number two or three game, but it still sold about 10,000 copies. And in order to promote the book, he suggested I write articles for some online sites that paid very, very little, but just to get my name out there, which I did. And then of course, with the poker boom, every online site wanted content to drive readers who would then click on the poker sites and play, and they would remunerate the the site I wrote for, for the clicks. And that's what really blossomed my poker writing career um, up until Black Friday, when all those sites shut down because now they couldn't get any money. Um, and that's, that's how I progressed. And then I published a second book. And just recently, my third book, Winning Poker in 30 Minutes a Day by D&B Publishing, just to get in a little plug. And that's that's my poker writing career. Can I go back? Where did you release this manuscript at 
on the internet in 96 and 97 to sell even 50 copies. There's no Amazon. Like where, where did you put it? I wrote it in 96 and 97, but it stayed on my computer until 99. And it was released on the discussion group, recreational gambling poker, RGP, as it was known, which was a predecessor to all of the discussion groups that now exist, including two plus all the forums, two plus two or pocket fives uh, or cards chat, whom I write for now. And you could put stuff up for people to read and comment on. So I did that back then. And I said, you know, back then it was, I think, NetTeller or PayPal, uh, PayPal me $10 for a copy of the manuscript. That was in around 99 or 2000. And, you know, 50 people, 60 people, Sent me 10 bucks. I thought I was rich. I made $500. Uh, Why did it sit there for three years? What what uh, were you waiting for? I was waiting for nothing, but it didn't occur to me in 96 that I could monetize this. I wrote it not to sell. I wrote it, interestingly enough, my, this gets back to my ethnic identity again. Our synagogue was doing a silent auction. So people would contribute if they had a summer house on the Cape, you could rent it for a week, you'd make a $2,000 donation uh, to the synagogue, you'd get, or they would have a wine collection and they'd sell a dozen bottles of wine, whatever. I didn't have any shit like that, but I thought I could sell poker lessons, not for myself, but make a contribution to the synagogue. I'll give you two hours of poker lessons. But I felt that was a little chintzy and I wanted something tangible to go with it. So I also threw in a 40-page manual on how to win seven-card stud in the casino. That's why I wrote it. Nobody bid on it. Or I think one guy, he contributed 100 bucks, but he never paid. He promised 100 bucks, but he never gave it or something. So I had this manual I wrote for this fundraising event sitting on my computer. <laughs> I started participating in this discussion group online that started around 98 and somebody posed a question. The question was, can anybody recommend a good strategy book on seven-card stud? To which I answered, kind of kiddingly, yeah, I wrote one. And if you wanted, it's 10 bucks. So somebody sent me 10 bucks. And I <laughs> sent them the book. And then the guy posted a review saying, this is a great book. Everybody should have a copy. And I got the 50, including Greg Dinkin, and he said, publish it. So it's a very good question on your part. I haven't thought about that for a long time. That's why it took until 2002, because it was not written for sale. It was written for a fundraising event. That's an amazing story, how you know serendipitous life can be, how these little bitty things that we do that we don't know that they're going to mean anything, and they don't really mean anything, and then it turns into this you know, 20 year career of yes. writing about poker and writing follow-up books and just being immersed in the poker world. It is interesting that things often become what they were not intended to be for the better and probably for the worse as well. But you're absolutely right. It was not intentional on my part. It was serendipitous. Yep. My, my entire uh, poker public poker career as a coach and, you know, creating premium training content for Rio and card runners, all of, all of that was totally accidental as well. And I, I just told this story like a couple of episodes ago. So the listener may be a little bored, but I'll tell you, Ashley, just since we're sharing stories, 
so I downloaded Camtasia, which is uh, you know desktop capturing software, and you're you can narrate, you can speak into the microphone, and I was like, cool. It was like a trial version. I was like, I got this 30 days. I don't want to pay 300 bucks for it. Like it's just a fun little thing. So I fired it up and captured my screen. I was playing four tables of online poker. And this is like, this was my life, right? This is what I had been doing professionally for many years. And I was like, I just want to make a video. And with no real thought of anything, because it's so common for me that like, it didn't feel it was like who's going to want to re watch this like who's going to spend 45 minutes watching this video so i record it i release it as soon as it's done to my youtube channel that you know i didn't know anything about like making a title making a thumbnail any of that i uploaded it to the automotive section of youtube of all places because i'm just such a noob and forgot about it and about a month later one human commented that they watch a lot of content on all of the sites and that they never make it through a full one. They made it through the entire 45 minutes of my video and that if I made more, they're pretty confident that I would get a following. And it was this one comment that I received as I was at leaving the movie theater with my wife. I got the notification on my phone. I was like, hey, look at that. That's pretty cool, right? And then I just started making more. And after I had made like 20 or 30, I reached out to card runners and they watched some of my videos and they were like, yeah, we want to pay you to come on as a coach. And then like, that was it. It was just like the, the one video that I made in a, a moment that I was excited to make this thing that turned into something else down the line. And now, you know, here I am, I guess it's, that's been probably six years ago or so. And I've just fallen in love with coaching. I've fallen in love with helping other people learn this game and guiding them on their poker journeys. It's really unexpected for me as well that being a player, a full-time player all this time, and somebody who had also gotten to the point of, I'm not going to say jaded, but the magic had worn a little thin after you know, millions of hands playing the same game over and over and over again every single day. It was like, you know, I'm growing, I'm learning still. It's incremental though. And so I didn't have that feeling of like, you know, when I was in 2004, I was 20 years old learning this thing. I mean, it was like just struck by a lightning bolt that was like sleep, eat, breathe poker. This was like my whole life, you know? And then coaching is like a whole different animal. It's teaching somebody how to play cards is a completely different ballgame than playing cards yourself or even playing at a very high level. And I know that this is something you've thought about a lot too. You've had to, if you've (laughs) written so many articles and books, it has to take up a significant amount of real estate in your headspace. So could you tell me about, you know, thinking about writing articles, this process of relaying super complicated information to people in a simple way. Sure. Um, First of all, I just want to say, Brad, listening to your story is fascinating. And I had one question before I answer your question. Sure. Has poker from the time you were 20 until today been your full-time gig or have you had other steady kind of straight employment that subsidized your poker adventure? 
my last real job, I was 19 years old and I worked at Applebee's as a server. And ever since that job ruined me for all other jobs for the rest of my life, (laughs) I've been a poker player ever since. So I have not had any other job since I was 20 years old. That's a tremendous thing. I, I have often thought that the world of being a full-time poker professional, piecing together, writing uh, a podcast and playing would be a very tough thing for me to do, even if the money at its peak was extraordinary. Uh, you know, I, I'm friends with Greg Raymer and have been since well before he won uh, the main event of the World Series of Poker. And when I interviewed him for my radio show, House of Cards, he said something that I was thinking of when you were talking, and that is being a professional poker player at its core is still a job. And long after the thrill of the excitement of the high point wears off, it's a job. And like any job, it's not always fun in games. It's often tedious and difficult when you get up in the morning and you got to go to work. So I think about that. And I was especially thinking about that when you were talking about how the, the thrill of things from the 19, when you were 20 years old, after it's worn away, how the poker world is viewed by you. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, yes. that could, could not be more true. So your question was what? I want to make sure I'm answering it. I don't know what the question was. We've we segued and I've lost the question. It, it was how do you think about poker? Um, uh, writing yes. your articles and... Yes, teaching and what do I get out of it? I have always found it extremely useful to me as a player to instruct other people, either as a coach directly or more of the time by writing down poker instruction. I find the the process of breaking down what I do into explainable points to really help me systematize my play by forcing me to think step by step what I am actually doing. There's a lot of tendency when one plays, at least from my generation, to play by instinct and feel as opposed to mathematically or scientifically. And so when I've had to explain in any of the thousand or 1100 articles I've written or the three books I've written, how it is that I have done what I've done successfully, it helps make it more systematic for me going forward. Absolutely. So that, that addresses it. Yeah. Also, and, one and, other thing is I love few things more than getting even small payments into my bank account for what I've done. I mean, even if I'm earning six figures in my day gig to get that $130 check from some online site deposited into my account, I, the thrill of that, of that extra money just really uh, excites me. And I love, it's, it's like an adding, it's like when you see your online poker stars account going up and up and up with your play. It's a way of, I guess, registering concretely one's success in the world. Unlike my day job, where it's sometimes hard to validate the value of what I'm doing because there's no numeric way of keeping score. In poker and in being a freelance writer, 
there is a numeric way of, of showing how I've been successful. It's getting those payments into the bank. And I just, I love that feeling of success. What's interesting is there's a parallel there that I've never put together. And that's in poker, the validation of being a professional player is your yearly income, the amount of money that hits your bank account. And then also in the content creator side of writing and coaching and doing all these other things, the money hitting your bank account is also validation of what you're doing. So those two parallel one another. That's right. That's right. And if you, it's like hits on your website. Um, it's a way of counting how you're doing. And I've always loved that. And, uh, and I still do, which is why I still write articles, even when the pay and the pay, by the way, since Black Friday, I mean, I remember it used to be that if you wrote a poker article for some sites or print magazines, you'd get 350 to $500 per article. Not quite what you get for writing for Esquire or Vogue or Playboy, but a decent amount of money for one's efforts. That has plummeted. And unfortunately, the plummeting is partially the responsibility of a lot of writers who will accept so little for what they do. And I, I decry that. I tell people they really should not accept those three cent a word, six cent a word, even 10 cent a word uh, payments. It just it uh, makes our work all the harder because the expectation of what somebody should get for writing a good strategy article has plummeted. It's really unfortunate. And it's something that I've experienced in the podcasting world too. It's, you know, you're looking for somebody to like sponsor a show, right? There's not people that are coming out of the woodworks to sponsor this show. There's not people who are coming out of the woodworks to say, Hey, why don't you write content for X, Y, or Z and we'll pay you this? Like there's nobody that's like backing up the Brinks truck to fund these ventures that I'm specifically taking on, right? And I realized that about six months ago and the realization that I came to was nobody's going to save me. Nobody's going to make this venture profitable by sponsoring me. So I have to take on this burden 100% myself and rely on myself to learn how to write sales copy, to write a daily newsletter, to you know build a functional web page, to build a community. And it's a lot of work and it's a lot of extremely hard and sometimes very boring and annoying, mindless work. But this is what you have to do in this day and age to set yourself up for success in this world. Because you know even Rob Young tweeted the other day, talking about, uh, you know, a representative for the recreational, it's like amateur poker league, I believe it is the APL. And the only thing that I tweeted was just make sure it's somebody who's been on the journey that can give wisdom and feedback to these amateur poker players and that can help them along. And, you know, he, he just said, well, it's going to be kind of tough because this is like an unpaid gig. And it just made me it made me fume a little on the inside. Like I didn't lash out or anything, but it's like, why are all these things unpaid? Like why, why are these people not making money for their energy and the life force that they put into this thing? Like the expectation, a league that's sponsored by party poker is not paying a representative. Like what world is this? And, and like, you know, people want to look at like the, the micro predatory behaviors in online poker platforms 
and not look at like, where are we nurturing human beings and incentivizing them to grow the game so that there's more people to draw from? We're just not. We're saying, oh, yeah, you want to do this for free. Poker.com offered to uh, post some of my content on their site. And they're like, yeah, like, you know, if you post stuff from us, we'll post it on your site. And so I, I like do do some digging, right? And I'm like, poker.com, this URL was trying to be sold for like 70 million back in 2006. It eventually fell through. And my assumption is they're just sitting on it until regulation gets w- wider spread in the States before they start monetizing it. But I was like, yeah, you can pay me. You know, you want to share my content? You can pay me for it. And they were like, sorry, we're not really seeking out paid gigs at this time. And I'm like, yeah, this $70 million domain name that's trying to build build up um, trust and have great content doesn't want to pay anybody. <laughs> like what is, it, it's, it's maddening. Yep, I agree. And, you know, it's, there are analogies to the straight world. If you're a musician, Back in the 70s, believe it or not, I was a musician in high school and in college, and we would play gigs at bars, parties, whatever. And the pay was, at the time, anywhere from $150 to $500 for our four-piece band, 50s rock band. Today, 45 years later, if you're a band, you're often expected to pay to play in a bar for tips, for drinks, for nothing. Because they say, well, we'll give you exposure, right? So Frederick Douglass, who's one of my favorite writers, said that, and I'm paraphrasing, people will earn whatever level they will accept without a fight. And as long as those that provide content are are unorganized, I'm letting my union hat show, whether it's in the music world or the poker world, as long as we are not a group that can organize and demand certain levels of payment, we will accept as little as is offered to us because what option do you have? All you can do, Brad, is say, no, I'm sorry, poker.com. You don't get my content just for swapping. I need to make money on this, so you got to pay me something. All you can do is just not sell it to them. You don't have any power to negotiate with the industry. Right. Um, So that's where we are. I mean, it would be great. And again, I'm wearing my union hat. If we could organize in some way and say, look, you don't get any content from all 1,500 of us people unless you pay us a certain amount and agree. I mean, think about all the sites that are stealing content. I don't know if you have that problem with podcasts, but my writing has been replicated and reproduced on a lot of sites with no payment. And then if you track it down and you somehow find the owner and challenge them on it, they say, oh, I thought you'd be pleased. We're sharing your stuff and spreading your name around. Has that happened with podcast? I mean, do you have that problem where people will play your stuff without compensation? They play my stuff without compensation everywhere. So... (laughs) And they pirate it. it, they put it on their site, and they it, it's not pirating nowadays in the podcasting world, it's more aggregation. So they just get in like a some sort of aggregated podcast player and they play it. As long as I get credited with the downloads and the plays, I'm okay with it because the more downloads and plays that I get, I have the ability to insert ads into my podcast. So 
you know, it's only good for me the more people that hear these episodes. So this is like the sort of top of the funnel. This is my free thing that like, I hope everybody shares it everywhere so that I I have more listeners that draw me, draw into my business. But yeah. Well, it works for you. It doesn't work for me because if I sell my article for 150 bucks to, you know, poker X. Right. And then somebody else steals it and puts it on their site. That doesn't help me at all. It may help Poker X if Poker X is credited because people may click to Poker X to see what other articles uh, this site has stolen or what other articles they have. But I, as the writer, become devalued because now the Poker X site is not paying for content. So why should anybody else who's putting up articles? This is all getting a little too esoteric for listeners, but I think people need to put value monetarily on what they are taking from those who are creative enough like you and like me to originate. And yeah, it's just, you got to vote with your dollars, right? Like you have to. And if you love the podcast, if you love Ashley's writing, then it makes sense to support these endeavors in some way. If this is like, if this show is near and dear to your heart, then you may want to consider investing into this show, whether that be through coaching, whether it be through some of the products that I offer, um, because that's what pays the bills. That's what keeps the light on. That's what keeps episodes dropping two times a week right now. It are, you know, this money that chasing poker greatness earns through the podcast. So yeah, it's a, it's a interesting problem in the world that we live in. And there's just a ton of, you know, content has just gotten so democratized now that you go to YouTube, you can find any how-to video on anything that you've ever wanted to know, right? Yes. In like the 80s or the 90s, you have to pay 20 bucks or 40 bucks for a DVD to watch this how-to video to learn more. And nowadays, or, or it's just different. you could hire an expert who now is putting his abilities online for all to see, maybe it was, it made sense. You'd hire a plumber rather than seeing how to do this particular task yourself. Um, What I wonder, how does the common poker player, the, you know, where you and I were when we were starting out or even after a while, how do they separate the free information that they're getting? How do they separate What's good and what's not good, aside from maybe associating a well-known name. So if I saw a video by Daniel Negrano or Doug Polk or someone, I might assume, well, they're a celebrity. They must know what they're talking about. Other than that, what indices are there that the person really knows what they're talking about and can help me? And I ask that question because if you go to any of a dozen, two dozen, three dozen poker sites that purport to be producing strategy articles. If I read through them, especially the stuff that's not No Limit Hold'em, because anybody can pretty much download key strategy points from experts and reproduce them as their own for No Limit Hold'em. I mean, the basics are pretty commonly known. But what I find is if I'm reading about Seven Card Stud, on pokerx.com invariably they get it all wrong and if i were just a casual viewer looking at it reading 
or watching somebody who's purported to be an expert talking about seven card stud. And I imagine also Badugi or stud high, low, or any of the other games other than no limit hold'em. I might be getting wrong information. So how do people know? I, I don't know the answer to that. So um, I guess there are some tells. There are some tells uh, in the writing and the teaching stuff. But first and foremost, I just want to say, like, don't trust everyone. As a matter of fact, don't trust almost anyone. And then when you do trust someone, trust them a lot. Because this one, you know, there's there's a problem in the poker world with training that I encounter um, on a regular basis. And it's like people have no anchor for their boat. They're constantly switching strategies and they just feel adrift. They start running bad and then they're like, I've been doing it all wrong. I need to start from scratch. I needed to do this. And they're just like moving from one shiny object to the next shiny object. And so when I say trust one person and that methodology, trust them. I don't care who it is right now. I'm going to give you some tells to figure out who the right person ought to be. But when you find that person, trust them. And the tells are anybody that claims they have the answer, that's a red flag. Because poker, you don't really have answers. You're asking questions. Anybody that's afraid of saying, I don't know, when they're asked a question about poker, do not trust them. Because again, nobody has the answers. And I don't know is perfectly acceptable. When somebody says, I don't know, that's a great question. Let me um, you know, think about this, reflect, and then I'll get back to you. That's sort of the person that you're looking for. And then anybody that guarantees any kind of success over any period of time, like guarantees it, you know, I write sales copy to sell my things. And it's really hard for me to write sales copy because like, you know, become a, you know, just become a crusher in 30 days or become a crusher in a week, right? Like, it's it's a hard thing to sell because there are no guarantees and you get out of this game what you put in and there are two identical people that can both come to me enter the same program that are at the same level of their journey and one person can get so much more out of it than it, than the other person so it's like there's no magic bullets there's no solution to making just anybody a crusher over you know, a week, two weeks, six months, even, you know, it's, it's a lifelong journey. And so hard answers, guarantee, those guarantees, those are the things that really are red flags to me. If somebody's using language that sounds smart, and then when you ask them what it means, they can't give you a clear definition. This is another red flag that they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Right. Because this is like something that people do all the time. I see it in forums where somebody will ask a question, somebody will respond in a way that I read it and I realize, oh, this is horrible. Like this is like the worst advice ever, but it sounds smart because of the language that they use. Yes. And if you press, you'll ultimately come to find out they don't know what they're talking about. They're just kind of trying to sound smart instead of be smart. So like, it's really hard to find great information. It's really hard to find people that you can trust. And in a way, in a way, and this is, a horrible thing that I'm about to say, but as a professional poker player, this misinformation 
has earned me a lot of money over the years because <laughs> people just read it. They accept it as the truth and then they do it and then they just get smashed. And I'm like, as long as there's this avalanche of misinformation, the games are probably going to stay good. Yeah, before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site, kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played in what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. The price is $199 and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. That's right. It's the irony of being a poker coach and a poker writer is that you are to some extent making your gig as a poker player more difficult by smartening people up. And in fact, one of the discussion points I remember on RGP, which was the group that I used to very actively participate in that I think has pretty much disappeared, is why, why go to the effort of writing poker books and poker articles? I mean, if you're really true to your goal of finding bad players and exploiting them with your superior play, you should never write an article. You should never write a book unless you do it deliberately to deceive people into playing incorrectly so you can make more money. Um, and the answer is it's ego. It's some sense of enjoying the process of helping others, but it's largely ego over profit, right? I love the idea of my book selling well, even if I really tutored everyone to play expertly at seven card stud my profit as a seven card stud player, theoretically, would evaporate. Um, so it's an interesting conundrum 
that I think we end up on the side of writing anyway, because frankly, the percentage of people I had, I wrote an article about this once, Brad. I don't know if you're a biker, if you uh, bicycle. I don't. Okay. Well, then you, you may not appreciate this, but I'm going to explain something because I think it's a good analogy. When I was a kid, I bought a bike, a, what we then called a 10 speeder. It was the modern bike that you take out on the road. Uh, it, we had 10 gears and it was a huge step above the English racer three-speed bike that kids used to have. The bike shop, when you bought a bike, would throw in, no additional cost, a spoke wrench. A spoke wrench is used to tighten the spoke so that when your wheel gets out of alignment, you can straighten it. And it seemed counterintuitive. Why would this bike shop that makes money by having repairs deliberately teach their or give people the tool to fix their own bike? Because if you give somebody the tool to fix their own bike, they're going to keep it and they won't have to take it into the bike shop. But in fact, by giving people that tool, that spoke wrench, they assured themselves of business in the future. Why? Not because of the goodwill of giving away a free item that might, what people might think, well, that's why they give it away. No, because just about every single bicyclist with a spoke wrench, when they, as a non-expert, attempted to true their own wheel by adjusting their spokes, they would fail miserably and put the bike out of alignment and then have to take it back to the bike shop and say, look, I totally fucked it up. Can you help me out? And the bike shop would be assured of being able to charge 20 or 30 bucks for two wheels. When you write a poker book or a poker article, most people don't read it thoroughly. They just think they have the book in their bookshelf. Now they're an expert and they continue to play badly and it does provide you more profit at the table because people are buying books, but they're not applying what they're learning. So that's the way I always thought of it, like giving out a free spoke wrench. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> that is my nightmare that you just described there is uh, <laughs> my that's my absolute nightmare is creating content that actively hurts people. Right. That doesn't help them improve. And I know that, like, this is a problem and it's really easy to make content like that where, you know, People are not going to consume it. It doesn't actually help them. And I think that's a big reason why it's really hard to find good poker training on the market um, that's actually beneficial. And that conundrum is like, you know, when I speak to some of the old school guys, they're like, why would you coach? Why would you teach somebody? Like, you're just making the games harder. I, I just say like, A, if I could say something if I if a guy could have one coaching session with me and I could solve all of his problems and then he went away from that session as a crusher the rest of his life maybe you'd be on to something but that ain't how poker works like that is not how poker works it takes a lot of effort to become a winning player at this game so first of all you know that's a fault faulty assumption and then second of all I get fulfillment out of helping humans become their best selves like if I see if somebody comes to me for coaching and I see myself in them, I see what they're striving for. And I've gone down this path of, you know, the futility I've dealt with failure. I've dealt with falling on my face. You know, I've, I've had all these things. It makes my spirit feel joy 
to share this with somebody so that maybe they don't have to suffer as much as I did. And maybe they don't have to experience that failure. And then maybe they don't have regrets like I do, right? Like that's another, another part of it is missed opportunities, you know, not investing yourself fully into this game when, you know, you're 23 years old and you're immature and you're an idiot and you decide to get drunk at night and don't play as many, as much cards as you should. Right. So like, all these things, they just, they make my spirit feel happy. That's, that's why I do them. And I believe 100% the day that they stop making my spirit happy, that's the day that I'm going to move on to something else with the rest of my life. Well, I'm glad you haven't moved on yet, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. Not yet. I still feel good. Um, good. Still feel good helping guys. And, and, and again, you get this feedback, right? Like somebody joins your, the chasing poker greatness VIP newsletter. I get a notification. I'm like, yeah, like it's a way of keeping score. You know, um, somebody invests in products or buys coaching, all these things, you know, give me the dopamine hit. And I I love, I love it. I, I haven't even played that much poker over like the last two months because, you know, I've just, it's a lot, right? Like you're, you're on the, the VIP newsletter. So I guess you've only been on it for a few days, but like, man, churning one of those out every single day, that's a lot of mental energy. It's a lot of struggle. It takes me a couple of hours. And then when we do the podcast and then coaching on top of it, I'm wiped. Like that's not a, I don't think I can successfully play poker right now with the schedule that I'm keeping. Yep. I find uh, it's very helpful for me. And I recommend to people that they not become full-time poker players, at least not for a long while of being a part-time successful player, because for me, at least, I need that balance. I need that straight gig to kind of anchor my schedule, provide me with a financial cushion from which I can then play poker as an intellectual uh, exercise instead of having to rely on it day in and day out to pay my bills, pay my mortgage, pay my food bills, pay tuition for my kids, et cetera. I would not be able psychologically to do what you have done. And I'm very impressed by the fact that you're able to build a life around different aspects of poker uh, to sustain you. I, I find that a really difficult challenge. I think you mentioned you were married. Do you have kids, Brad? I do. Yeah. Well, my hat is off to you because having to rely on the very uh, mercurial poker income stream to support that, man, that would be tough. Sometimes I'm maybe too stubborn for my own good. And, you know, you're right. It it is tough. And it's a stress that is hard to even put into words when you have bills due and you're on a downswing. And you know that if you don't show up to work, you're not going to make money. But you also know that if you show up to work, you might get your face smashed in. And there's a, there's a stress there. There's a pressure that I think over the years has made me a stronger human being and more capable of putting my mind to something and then just going for it. And again, this is like this is why I believe that my coaching is so valuable because I've dealt with this. I've been in the arena I have battled, I've been bloody, I've been, you know, beaten down, I've triumphed. Um, I've been through the whole 
the whole sequence of events. And so like, there's a lot that you can learn and take away when you've gone through that yourself. And this has been your life, but going back to what you said, yes, uh, the way I went about it was the absolute hardest possible way one could go about doing a thing. And now with coaching and, you know, creating supplementary income, I obviously see the value of that as well. It just wasn't an option for me. You know, my, uh, I could go back to work at Applebee's, I guess, but that wasn't uh, ultra appealing in the middle of, you know, being a professional poker player. But yeah, it's, uh, it's tough, man. It's a tough life. And those of us that make it through, I believe we, we look at each other and, and we just know, you know, we know that some stuff has gone down, like some shit has gone down. We're battle-hardened warriors and there's a respect there. Yep, I agree. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, You'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. So let's move on to the lightning round real quick. And and by the way, I did not mean any disrespect for the title of your book, Winning Poker in 30 Minutes a Day, (laughs) when I was making my, my monologue there. I agree. Uh, the, the title was chosen. It's funny. Uh, my publisher, D&B, whom I, I really like, uh, Dan is a wonderful guy that I deal with. Byron, also terrific guys. Uh, they asked me to come up with a title because, frankly, titles sell books. And they're the experts on selling books. They, I think, are the premier publisher today, more than 2 Plus 2, certainly more than Cardoza these days. And they asked me to come up with a list of titles and they would pick one. So I came up with about 100 different titles, including the kitschy one, Winning Poker in 30 Minutes a Day, almost as a joke. I mean, so they thought that was the one that would sell. Go figure. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like like I said, studying sales copy, people want to win, and people want to win by not investing much energy. And so right. winning in 30 minutes a day, hey, that's doable, right? doesn't um, say how many days. I mean, it could be 30 minutes a day for the rest of your life, <laughs> right? But it does. 
I did want to make poker something that you didn't have to dive into too deeply every day in order to learn enough to beat the bad players that you can find in public poker rooms. That was the key reason. I wanted the regular player, not the expert or the wannabe expert, but the regular player to see that there's a way to learn enough to at least be marginally profitable without a ton of work, which I think, with all due respect to the experts out there, if you are good at finding bad players, which I think should be the principal goal for most of us, those of us that are not going to be full-time players, our goal is to find players that are not as good as we are. And if you do that and you learn some basics, I think you can, and I've shown people, they can beat the one-two game. I don't use the term crusher because you can't crush the game by treating it as something that I need to learn a few basic things, but you can beat it. And at least you can make your, your hobby marginally profitable, which I think is enough to make this an incredibly fun game, just like golf, except golf, you're losing money, thousands of dollars a year. At least at poker, you can break even or make a few thousand dollars a year. And that's a worthy goal for most people. For sure. As a hobby, there's very few hobbies that you can break even at over the course of your lifetime. Most hobbies are going to, you know, you're going to spend a bunch of money and get some experiences out of it. But ultimately, if you're thinking in financial terms, you're going to lose money by investing in these hobbies. And, and you're absolutely right. Like a one, two, one, three live poker game is beatable without a ton of work. You don't need to be an expert to be able to beat those small stakes games. When you think about joy in your career, joy, joy. Yeah. When you think about joy in your career, writing about cards, being immersed in cards, playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Ah, two, two pop. And you didn't ask me this question, but as soon as you said joy, two experiences, one, Alabama, I was playing at the World Poker Open in Tunica, Mississippi. And I was playing in a side game uh, with a guy. And we get to talking. He's a Southern guy. I'm from Boston. We talk about our hometowns. And he mentions that he's from Alabama and his brother has a home game. So being a road warrior and loving to travel here I am staying in Tunica. I said, wow, do you think I could play in it? And he says, well, let me call him and see. Comes back to the table and he says, yeah, there's a game tomorrow night and you're invited. Well, it's a five and a half hour drive. I have to drive the entire state of Mississippi. And if I arrive by six o'clock, I can play in the game. I have to go to a diner. He works at the diner. He'll tell me how to get to the home game, which is five miles away in the woods of Alabama. Yeah. So I did that. And I find the diner. I drive five hours across the state of Mississippi, which was great on a two-lane highway, stopping at different places for food that I've never eaten, seeing the sights. I arrive at the restaurant. The guy's brother meets me there. He's excited. He didn't think I'd really do it. He feeds me some food. 
Brunswick stew, which he says is made with squirrel. I don't believe him, but I eat it anyway. Who knows? Tasted delicious. He then gives me these unbelievable directions to the game. You know, go down the road. There'll be a clump of trees. There's a little path you drive into. Don't get worried. You just follow it. Take a right at the (laughs) fork by another clump of trees. You'll find a Quonset hut in the woods. And that's where the game is. So I drive. I find the landmarks. It's dark now. It's like totally, it's in January. So it's totally pitch black. No streetlights on these dirt roads. I start to hear in the back of my mind, the theme song of the movie Deliverance. I don't know if you ever saw Deliverance. Oh, I have. I have. Bum, 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 bum. I start, I'm thinking, am I being set up, <laughs> robbed, and, yeah. you know, squeal like a pig? I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> You're going to be in the Brunswick stew next week. <laughs> That's right. No one's ever said that before. Be in the Brunswick. So I finally get to this Quonset hut in the woods. I knock on the door. I'm a little, I mean, this is the most nervous I've ever been about playing <laughs> private games. And a guy greets me. Sure enough, they got six guys. I'm the seventh. And we sit down and we play. And they're they're pretty good players. They're very friendly, wonderfully catered place because the diner catered the game. After an hour, there's another knock on the door. And it's a guy in overalls, just like you'd imagine, in the middle of Alabama, in the country, in the middle of the woods, comes to the game. He's the eighth player. The host introduces me, says, this is Ashley. He's our guest, friend of my brother's. And the guy says, Ashley, Ashley Adams, the poker writer? You know, that never happens to me. I had a regular column in Poker Player newspaper, but except for my home casino, I didn't think anybody read. He says, I read your stuff all the time. (laughs) And so here I was in the middle of Alabama, a poker celebrity. Um, So that's one joy. The other happened three years ago. I was with my wife. We go to Japan once a year. She teaches something over there every year. And I, we go for two or three weeks I got to find there's no legal poker in Japan. Can I, can I ask you? Yes. What does she, is it like a changing thing um, every year, a point to go to Japan to teach something? No, no. She is something called an Alexander technique teacher. She teaches a method of easeful movement for musicians, for actors, and actually for lots of different people to learn how to unlearn bad habits that give you neck and back pain a more easeful way of doing whatever you do. She's a master teacher and groups all over the world ask her to come and teach their students. So she has this group in Japan that always want her to come. So we go end of December, beginning of January, just about every year, not with COVID, but other than this year, we've been going for seven, eight, nine years. So she does that. I got nothing to do. I love traveling around Japan, but even the, after a while, even the wonderfulness of Japan, I got to find a poker game. There's an underground game, not a very good game. The structure is not good. So I, I play in that a little, but then I try to find another place to go for a week where they have poker. So I've been to Macau, I've been to the Philippines, been to South Korea. And this year, that three years ago, I went to the island U.S. territory of Saipan. 
in the Northern Mariana Islands. It's one of five inhabited U.S. territories because they had just finished building, not quite finished, but a huge casino on the island of Saipan, Chinese owned, and they had a poker room. I read about it. I called, I talked, and they had a regular game every night. I figured that's it. It's in the tropics. It's January. It's warm. I'll go there. I went there. They had a 1-2 game and a 2-5 game. I'm a very conservative player. I sat in the 1-2 game. It was just awful. It was people bought in for $40. They check, they, you know, they call the blind and check and check and check and just timid, short stacked, awful game, huge rake. I said, this is not for me. I went to the 2-5 game. 2-5 game, $1,000 max buy-in, violated all the time. A lot of Chinese multi-gazillionaires playing. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going on too long, but I bought in for a thousand bucks. Guys are sitting there with ten thousand, twenty thousand dollar stacks, drinking like crazy. And here was a typical round. Uh two dollar, five dollar blind, race to a hundred blind, shove for a thousand. <laughs> right? Fold, fold, call, 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 call. For a thousand bucks, some of the people calling blind. Uh, the flop, well, two of the guys are all in. Third guy shoves for nine thousand dollars more. Call, call. Two, three people in the main pot, or three people in a side pot. All of them in, and then they show down, and the guy shoved with eight, four suited, and one with two pair. Shit like that. So that's not my typical style of play, but it was better than playing with $40 stacks. So the greatest joy I had, I had built up my stack to, I think, 3,500. And the craziest gambler at the table raised to $100 pre-flop. I look down, I have a pair of 10s. Five guys are in for 100 bucks. Nobody raised. Go figure. So five of us with my 10s, I'm not feeling very confident. The flop comes, check, check, to the wild man. He shoves for 10000 So I got to decide. I have 30. Oh, the flop was low, 379, something like that. So I got a pair of 10s as an overpair and a crazy guy who could have a range of anything. And I figure, well, I'm getting it in good, probably. So I call for my whole stack. Everybody folds to him. He doesn't want to show his cards. Fine. It's a good sign. Turn is an ace, and I'm thinking, oh, shit, he shoved with ace something. I'm done. Uh, River is a king. I'm sure I've lost. He must have an ace or a king or two pair or a set or something. I don't wait for him to show because he's just playing around. I show my tens. He mucks his hand. I win the largest hand I've ever won. And that was joy. Just a denouement on the story. Shortly thereafter, my heart in my mouth, I can't concentrate to play. I mean, I just went all in for all my money and won. I go to cash out. I'm, you know, I don't know, 3,500 bucks to the good. And this guy was so rich. He was cashing in and breaking down one chip. He had a pocket full of $100,000 placards, and he was breaking one of them down so he could restack 
up to $10,000 at the table. Just put everything in perspective. So that was my other joy. I think you just ruined the games in Saipan. There's, they're going to be invaded by <laughs> a bunch of Americans trying to access this legendary game that you just described. Like I'm salivating. I'm like, can I figure out how to get the Saipan right now? Like that seems that that's a game I want to be in. That's well, let uh, me ask you a question then. Cause here's a question I posed. What in your mind is the strategy for a sick, wild, crazy, insane game like that? What do you do? Do you super tighten up and play a super narrow range? Do you spread out and play everything until the flop? How do you play that game in a logical way? I press... Short buy-in? I press edges. No, I, I mean, I'm not known for my short buy-ins. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty well known for buying in as deep as I can to try to cover the whale or the fish as it is and trying to find opportunities that, where I have a big edge. And like, like the tins, for instance, if somebody raised and they're just wild and playing every hand... I'm likely to three bet to eleven or $1,200 just to push my edge versus somebody that I believe I have an equity advantage against and then navigate post-flop. But um, yeah, it's just I fight fire with fire. And if, if somebody's in there battling and they're likely to be bluffing, then I'm right there firing at them um, in the middle well, of let everything. Let me ask you a question about that. Let's say all the money in the world that you have is $10,000 Yeah, for poker. You, maybe all the money you have traveling-wise is ten grand. you got a bank account at home, but you don't have access to it. You've got $10,000. There's a game like this where people are buying in way over the cap and the house is looking the other way because all they care about is raking as much as they can and they realize they got to keep these guys happy so they're not going to tell them, sir, you can only buy in for 1000 So they're guys sitting there with $10,000 stacks. You have 10000 You know that you're likely to get shoved on. Do you buy in for all 10000 hoping to take your small advantage to profit but willing to risk everything on one hand? Or do you actually change your practice, buy in short, because you may need to buy in a bunch of times for your small advantage to actually win you a pot? There are variables here that I, I think – need to be addressed. And the number one variable is how long am I going to be there? How many days am I going to have access to this game? And if I have access for one day only, I'm likely to just buy in for the 10K. Um, if I'm going to be there for like a week, I am likely to figure out a way to <laughs> see if I can get wired some more funds firstly <laughs> to see if I have access to more money, right? Like call a friend or you know, try to figure out some way to get funds in here so that I can, you know, have a bigger bankroll to play in this game. And then if I cannot do that, if, and I'm going to be there for a week, I guess the next thing that I'm going to do is figure out how long these guys are going to be in here firing at this game like this. And it, if it's a one night show, then I'm buying in for the 10 K. If they're going to be there all week, I'm probably going to be a little more risk averse and buy in for like 2000 a pop instead of the full 10K. But um, yeah, all those variables I'm going to use to make my decision. Well, you are a braver man than I, because my thinking is if all the money I have in the world for poker 
for this game could be riding on one card, even if I know I'm a 60-40 favorite. The chance of going bust with the 60% end is still too high for me to easily, and maybe the question isn't it shouldn't be easy, but you should do it anyway, to easily let it ride. And, and I realize the argument intellectually, well, if you're not letting your money ride at 60% advantage, what the hell are you doing playing poker? But it does cause me some pause to think about the risk of ruin versus the percentage advantage I might have. And so it caused me enough concern that I said, you know what, as long as I have those things ticking in my head, I really have no business sitting down in this game because I'm not trusting a 60-40 or a 70-30 advantage to uh, propel me to be in this hand. Then what am I doing playing games that are all built on even smaller percentage advantages? And so there, there are a number of things too, like if it's all the money in the world, right, then that's a different story, I guess, than being able to like reload when I go back home. And also like what stage of life am I in? What season of life? Is it pre, you know, pre children? I'm just a single person out in the world. Like I'm definitely more inclined to take risks when I have less responsibilities in my life. And then secondly, to your point of it being a 60, 40, I wouldn't really think of it like that. And I wouldn't actually be looking to get the money in on flops and turns. What I would likely be trying to do is to make the game go deeper into the decision tree where I believe I'm vastly superior than some people that are just clicking buttons at finding betting patterns, finding tells, finding, figuring out what these guys are doing, how they're approaching their incentives, and then you know, basically mapping out who they are and what they're trying to do, and then taking spots where I'm pretty confident that they're bluffing on the river or that I'm pretty confident that you know I'm going to get some great value on the river. So it wouldn't be – I would not be trying to make it like a total preflop game. I would be trying to expand out in the decision tree because I think as you get deeper in the decision tree – inexperienced players typically construct their ranges in such a way that allows you to read them fairly well and have a pretty good gauge as to what they're doing. And then the final point is, you know, that I know you're going to ask, I can like see it in a crystal ball is like, how much do I trust this read? Right. If I'm in for my whole 10 K and they put me in a spot on the river, what am I going to do? Right. Um, and the answer is I know myself well enough to know that I will 100% trust whatever my read is, even if I know it's wrong and I know – even if I know that it can be wrong and I could end up being felted, this is just something that is built into me as a human being. I don't consider anything else other than the play – in the moment when it's being made. And if I think that somebody's bluffing, there was a very uh, a funny hand that I played early on in my career where, you know, <laughs> I had gone through some things, uh, immature things in my poker career, letting people borrow money, um, trusting folks with money that I should not have trusted. And I was playing at a game one time where, you know, I had maybe liquid 
500 bucks and I bought in for the 500 and I remember somebody bluffing on the river and I had like fourth pair. Uh, I thought they were bluffing and I realized like, if you call here, what are you going to do? And I just thought, doesn't matter. doesn't matter what I'm going to do. I'm just going to call. I called, he was bluffing uh, with like my case liquid money at the time. And so I, I do, I have experience being in that spot and I know like, I'm just going to pull the trigger. That's, that's just who I am. I trust in my ability. You got to trust in your abilities. I agree. Um, the complexity occurs when you can't get deep into the decision tree because not through your initiative, but through those of your crazy opponents, they are forcing you to make a stack decision early in the decision tree by shoving flop or pre-flop. Then the question is, well, you're reading them for not having your hand beaten, but even hands that have a huge advantage pre-flop don't have a 10 to one advantage. Sure. They're, you know, 83, 17 at best. So well, if it's two five, if it's two five, and I'm buying in for ten k, um, the one k, you know, that's only ten percent of my stack. That's not so so bad. If dude just starts shoving for ten k, well, then I'm just gonna wait for aces, and like we'll go to war when I get aces. If they're just shoving every hand, I mean, it's two five, so like you have the ability to just wait forever until you have like aces. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna wait for aces. It's <laughs> I'm gonna have aces, kings or queens and just get it in for 10 K and hope not for the tens. best. Probably not tens just because I have the opportunity to wait. I mean, it's $7 in orbit. Like why, why take an unnecessary chance when you could just wait for, you know, a, a, a situation where you're, you know, 85% plus favorite. Okay. Well, that, anyway, that, that is, both a source of joy and a source of intellectual pleasure thinking about that. And I got to say to all your viewers and listeners, sad to say the Imperial Palace has shut down its poker game and I think its entire operations uh, because of all sorts of financial mismanagement and the like. Uh, and that game, unfortunately, no longer exists. And flights to that island are even hard to get. Um, they stopped the direct flight from Japan, from Tokyo, and uh, it's not nearly as accessible as many other places uh, in that part of the world, including, by the way, Macau is also a great place for huge action games. I do recommend it way over my head, but there were people playing uh, 250, 500 blind, no limit hold'em, 250, $500 blind, uh, no limit. When I was in Macau, uh, you got a deep bankroll. Uh, that game is sick. Yeah, I uh, so unpack your bag, dear listener. Um, your trip is canceled. That opportunity no longer exists. Ashley, so if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Well, no question about it. I would give them winning poker in 30 minutes a day so that they could learn the... Uh, but if they were an experienced player that wanted to move from being good to excellent, I'd have to give them one of Tommy Angelo's book or one of Ed Miller's books. And I don't even know which ones. Um, Tommy is here kind of watching this. He's a longtime friend of mine in the poker world whom I respect. I love, love his books. And I also love Ed Miller for giving people a way of playing that is not ABC. 
So I would say either of those. Of course, if I were really giving a book as a gift, perhaps I'd give one that had great sentimental value to me uh, rather than practical value. And I might gift a first edition of Education of a Poker Player, uh, which to, by Yardley, which is a wonderful read, or the original Super Systems, How I Made a Million Dollars Playing Poker by Doyle Brunson, um, any of those. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on their way to the casino, what would it say? Um, a billboard that they would have to drive past on the way to the casino. Um, hmm. Well, certainly something like play poker. Um, it's a game where you have a chance or something like that to steer them to the poker games, to let them know that that's where they should be spending their gambling dollars instead of throwing them away. So play poker, a game of skill, something like that. And final question, Ashley, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, there are a few ways. I would suggest they go to cardschat.com to look for my uh, current columns, cardschat.com. They can go to a house of cards radio.com, uh, which is where I have uh, interviews with great poker players and writers like Tommy Angelo, or they could uh, go on the internet and send me an email at <laughs> an archaic email address, Asha, A S H A 34 at AOL.com to contact me so we could engage in uh, dialogue about poker, or they could go to DNB publishing and uh, pick up a copy of winning poker in 30 minutes a day. So when you made that email address, was that the year 1934? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's when I got, I was such an innovator before I was born. No, the 34 was just a uh, random number because there were already too many ashes back when people were on AOL. Now it's an archaic address because nobody's on AOL, but me and my wife and maybe a handful of other people. For sure. Thank you for your time. This has been a, a real joy. I've, I've enjoyed hearing, you know, stories from your journey and your life playing cards. I very much would like to have you on again sometime in the future so we could tell more stories and maybe promote a book that you're releasing if there's such a project that's in the works. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, Brad, you are a wonderful interviewer. This has been a great forum and I've enjoyed it and of course would enjoy doing it again. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.